Apostle Paul is inspired to write, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't have to look far to perceive that we're constantly confronted by self-interest in our society. We live in a culture that's dominated by self. We see that everywhere. We often seek the nicest things for ourselves. We carve out time to do the things that we want. We use our resources we have set aside beforehand for ourselves to accomplish the sometimes hard task of doing me. Put that in quotations. I'm just doing me. Some of us are given to seeking more material things, material ends for our self-gratification. Maybe the nicest house, a well-paying job, the latest technology. Others might think falsely that we're a bit modest and we settle for little pleasures that are more budget-friendly. Maybe you spend time on social media, entertainment, or indulging in certain hobbies. Some of us are hoarders of our time and resources and our talents. Well, because doing things for others, that's just too much work, right? It takes too much time, too much energy to do things for others, to think about others. Still, some of us want to be free thinkers or define who we are by how we feel. So expressing ourselves without challenge is kind of the thing we want to do. Maybe we want to hide so as not to be challenged without regard to anyone else's thoughts or feelings because I'm just being who I am. This is who I am. This is how I feel. You have no right to tell me otherwise. I mean, we see that in our culture too. We can act like that from time to time. All of these views express a kind of self-interest, and these are just a few. Self-interest is big. It's a hard attitude. We can see it in others, but we rarely see it in ourselves. It starts early in our childhood when we seek to dominate others by fighting over toys or stealing a cookie or getting jealous of a sibling. Authority in our home must be implemented or else this unrestrained lust for me, my wants, my desires, it runs rampant. We live in a society with laws because without them, this kind of self-will would cause society to crumble. This drive to seek our own interest above the good of others is a symptom of our fallen nature, of sin. It expresses itself in many ways, And you might retreat from certain kind of communities to do your own thing again, to just do you. You might manipulate and lie to get your own way or impose your own will by force to get the things that you want. Or you just might simply rebel against what you perceive to be limiting and intolerant to your views. Again, all of this is an expression of self-interest, and it is in rebellion to our creator, God. That's the heart of it. It's rebellion against God the one who made us in his image to serve him and to serve others. Sin has taught us that the highest good is ourselves, and we practice it from birth. So the sad fact is when we become believers, this mindset to drive and to dominate by any means necessary, it doesn't magically go away. It might get better, but it is, and it should get better, but it doesn't magically go away. So self-interest can plague the church. It shouldn't, but it can. Sometimes it's overt, and you can see it right on the face of things, and sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes we see it, and sometimes we need help seeing it from others. Sometimes when others try to help us to see it, we don't like it because it's an obstacle getting in our way to fulfill our own desires. This leads to division. It leads to tension. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to disunity. But ultimately... The antidote to this plague, to this disease, is found in God's word, specifically in the mindset of God revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we just read in our text. 
The cure for pride expressed in self-interest or self-driven domination and its attendant rebellion and its relationship-destroying power is found in the mind of Jesus Christ, who represents the antithesis, the very opposite, the exact opposite of a drive to dominate others, even though he could have. And we'll look at that. So this is the point of our text. We must endeavor to have the mind of Christ who lowered himself and obeyed, resulting in his exaltation to the Father's glory so that we might display Christ's lordship through our unity, humility, and obedience. Our unity, humility, and obedience. We must endeavor to have this mind. We see echoes of the demonstrations of Christ's lordship in unity and obedience in the context of the passage. So Paul declares to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's God who does the work. He who began a good work, he'll bring it to completion in that day, in a future day. Their salvation, their sanctification, their perseverance is dependent upon God's grace. Yet he continues to exhort them in Philippians 1.27 to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Their life should reflect this reality. This, in turn, advances the cause of the gospel, just as obedience advances the cause of the gospel. It's a part of our evangelism. It's a witness to the, to the power of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continues in 128 to tell that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted. It's a gift. It's been granted by God for you to believe in him. Not only this, but to suffer for his sake. Their faith and their suffering for the gospel is a privilege. And he's going to touch on that in this passage as well. So kind of in the immediate context, if we look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation of the Spirit or in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, So in these passages that we saw leading up to this from Philippians 1 all the way into 2 now, we see the themes of unity, obedience through faith and suffering. And now Paul will teach us the motivation and means by which it's accomplished in us, this humility, namely that of Christ's humility. So we are commanded to model Jesus in three respects, and this is in your notes. So you have the so that statement, we must endeavor to have the mind of Christ, and it results in these things so that God might be glorified through unity, obedience, and humility. But we're commanded to model Jesus in three respects. One, we must model Christ in our relationships. You can fill them all in right now, but I'll, I'll cover them again. So we must model Christ in our relationships. It's verse 5. We must model Christ in our obedience. That's verses 6 through 8. And we must model Christ for our future reward. So like many texts in the Bible, we're going to note there's a, a progression here. There's a command in verse 5. The command is this, think like Jesus. Paul's going to ground this command, or he does ground this command in the character of Jesus and show the manner in which Jesus thought that way. It had concrete expression. Think this way, like Jesus thought this way, and it looked this way. So it's not just what the ESV kind of looks like, have this mind in yourselves. It's It's an imperative, it's a command. Think like this. That's the thrust of it. He acted a certain way because he thought a certain way. His attitude was expressed in his actions, and there were results to his actions that we're going to see in verses 9 through 11. And the implication is is that our thinking must be grounded in the same truths, and if they are, they'll find concrete expression in our actions toward one another as well. This is the emphasis of the passage. Now, if we go a little bit further in verse 6, we're going to look at how Christ existed in the form of God, though he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over this passage. It's called the kenosis. That's the Greek word for emptying that is used here. What does that mean? And a lot of commentators that I read said, well, that kind of misses the point. We can talk about those things, those theological things, but Paul is using Christ as an example here. So we'll address that so we're thinking about it rightly, but we'll also say, hey, the point of the passage is that we must think like Christ and see his humility so that we act a certain way in our own thinking toward one another. 
So hopefully our questions will be answered despite some of the wording, which is a bit difficult in here in the original language. But again, let's not lose sight of the main thrust, which is Christ, the example of humility, which serves and motivates us. He serves us, and then his example motivates us. So verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, was model Christ in our relationships, point one. You might ask how I got this from point one, model Christ in your relationships. I don't see anything about relationships here. Well, the key lies in the word this. Have this mind in yourselves. And it harkens back to Paul's command in verses 3 and 4. He exhorts the Philippians to have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord in verses 1 and 2. And then he tells them how to do it. There are imperatives here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is empty glory. That's conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is the mind he's talking about, this mind. It's a non-selfish or vain mind. It's a humble mind that's others-centered. These qualities are part and parcel to our fallen nature, that is selfish ambition and vain glory or, or conceit. And they nullify the unity and the love that Paul encourages them to express in verses 1 and 2 being of the same mind, participating in the Spirit. Considering and caring for others is a matter of first priority here. We are commanded in verse 5 to think this way. Now, this is a call to discipleship. This is the disciples' attitude. It's an attitude of servanthood and self-sacrifice, not for your own sake, but for the sake of others. So this attitude should not only be a way of thinking, like have this mind in you, but it's a command to think this way. Think like this. This is the way that you ought to think with one another. Not merely have this mind in yourselves, but think this way with one another, among yourselves. Think this way together with regard to each other. That's what verse 5 means. Frank Thielman, his commentator, helps us to understand this point when he says, Paul composed the passage himself with great care and order, to portray Jesus as the example for the Philippians to follow as they reshape their thinking about their mutual relationships. Think about it that way. This is to reshape your thinking about mutual, your mutual relationships. This passage is about humility in our relationships with one another and Christ functioning as that example. And this is our motivation. We're motivated by this. This is why Paul tells them, Think this way among yourself, which was in Christ Jesus also. So I take the translation of verse 5, the end of verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's how the ESV translates it. And you can translate it that way, but in the original, the word yours is not in that back half of the verse. Just which also in Christ Jesus. That's kind of the literal translation. Think this way among yourself, which also in Christ Jesus. If you want to get real wooden, that's how it, that's how it looks. And I think they did this, the translators did this, because there have been legalistic abuses with regard to obedience and how obedience relates to the gospel, how the law of God relates to the gospel. And so there's been two predominant views of this passage. One of them is called the charismatic view. It comes from the word caruso, preaching, gospel, which means that just like the ESV translates it, it can kind of be, this is yours in Christ Jesus, so you already have it because you're in union with Christ. And so it kind of downplays the idea that you're to follow his example, but more like believe in that example. It's, it's yours already in Christ Jesus. And then there's the ethical view, which is the more traditional view. It's to imitate. This is Christ doing something, and we're to imitate his character. So if we say that this mind is yours in union with Christ, we're not really called to imitate it, but rather believe it. We don't have to take one or the other. This can be both. It is our mind in Christ Jesus, and we're called to imitate it and believe it. And that's the thrust of the passage, to imitate this. We can believe the truths of verses 6 through 8 and imitate Christ because we're called to obey now and work out our salvation, verses 12 through 13, with fear and trembling because it's God who works and wills in you for his good pleasure. So it's a both and here. So what follows, an explanation of the mind of Christ functions as a pattern. Think about it that way. It's a pattern or a form about how we ought to think. Having been saved by grace, having been saved by his person 
and his work. Gordon Fee comments this way. He says, Christ serves us as a paradigm for the Christian life. As some fear a betrayal of Paul's gospel, receiving grace by faith alone, it's grace alone, they would think that, oh, you're adding works now. Some fear that, and that's what he's saying. On the contrary, he says, it reinforces a significant aspect of the gospel, namely that there is not genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time by the power of the Holy Spirit being regularly transformed into the likeness of Christ. Read that again. There's not genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time by the power of the Holy Spirit being regularly transformed into the likeness of Christ. He says, a gospel of grace which omits obedience is not Pauline in any sense. Obedience, after all, is precisely the point, like he says, and like I said earlier, made in the application that follows in verse 12. To be sure, the indicative must precede the imperative. In other words, your union with Christ, your status as being justified, imputed righteousness because Christ died for sinners and you trust in Christ's death and resurrection and God says, I reckon his righteousness to you. That's the indicative. And then the imperative follows. So obey now that you've been redeemed. But he says again, it does not eliminate the imperative or else likewise all is lost. The gospel is lost if we negate the imperative. So we're called to follow Christ's pattern. And I think we know how to do this. We follow patterns all the time. We don't simply identify with cultures and communities. And our culture is kind of that of little subgroups and communities. They all have their little identities, right? Um, I'm going to pick on a few of them. I hope I don't offend any of you. But if you're a hipster, right, you identify with a certain kind of culture. You wear certain clothes. And this mindset has expression in what you do, doesn't it, right? And you can think of all different kinds of styles and communities where your mindset or that mindset of the community finds expression in how you look, what you do, and even how you think. Your ethnicity and your social status can do the same thing. They come with certain mindsets and certain practices. But I'll tell you what, all of these mindsets and practices that are not Christ, they're going to come into conflict with Christ. And they should. And, and we want to know where that happens in our own heart. We want the mind of Christ to come into conflict with our own preferences, our own dispositions. And the reason why they come into conflict is because ultimately they're not from Christ and they're mindsets that are selfish, they're self-seeking, and they're mindsets that seek empty glory or vain glory, seeking their own glory. They're not from God's word. They're, they're fallen mindsets. And then what they do is divide people. They might unite people in a certain subgroup, but they divide the church. So Christ unites people with his mindset from different backgrounds, dispositions, statuses, and preferences. We should want to see that in the church. All different people united by the mind of Christ because they think like him. So here we are called to think a certain way in our relationships and in our discipleship, stemming from verses 3 and 4, right? Don't seek your own glory. Um, don't seek your own self, but be others-seeking or others-centered and be sacrificial. The way we think should result in humility and obedience because it resulted in humility and obedience for Christ. That's the point. So we'll move on to verse 6, and we'll see how this happened because he's our pattern. We want to see how did it look in his life that his own lack of self-interest or other-centeredness manifested itself in obedience, and we'll see it also manifested in, in his own suffering. Verse 6, who, right? Who, though he was in the form of God. We're talking about Christ. Think this way, which was also in Christ. Who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. You can even translate that slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we have two actions that Jesus took because of his mindset. Two actions. So the main verbs are, he thought a certain way. Because he thought a certain way, he did this. In verse 7, he emptied himself. And what does that mean, he emptied himself? We'll talk about that. And then in verse 8, he humbled himself. Two, two actions resulting from his mindset. So here we'll see that he emptied himself with respect to his divinity. That doesn't really tell you much either. What does that mean? He emptied himself with respect to his divinity. And then we'll see a progression. He even lowered himself more. So he emptied himself with respect to his divinity, and then he went even further and lowered himself more in his humanity, with respect to his humanity. 
So, but first is mindset, verse 6, and then we'll talk about what those actions mean. Again, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6 says that Jesus existed in the form of God. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that he was like God? Does that mean that he was a part of God? What does the form of God mean? Well, it means that he was eternally existent before all creation as the Son of God. The man Jesus was born in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. The Son of God existed from eternity past. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He existed in the form of God. The idea was that this form of God, and Paul is using, he's kind of using metaphor. I mean, he's explaining God's existence, the eternal God's existence, and he's using human language to do it. And so he does it by doing this. He says, he existed in the form of God, and that's contrasted to verse 7. He came as a slave, the form of a slave, by him taking on the form of a slave. This manner in which he lowered himself is called the incarnation. God becomes a man. The word used for form is morphe. We don't see it anywhere else. It's not simply mean form or shape as as if he was like God, like I said before, but it points to the essence of his character. That's what form does. Form points to the essence of who Jesus is, and that's in his being. In his being, he existed as God and does exist as God, but he took on the essence of a slave. Moreover, we know that Paul is talking about Jesus having the essence of God in that he continues on in verse 6 to say what? That he did not count his equality with God something to be grasped. What does that mean, grasp? To hold on to. I take it to mean that he didn't use it for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't hoard it. He didn't use it for his own self-interest. This is in direct contrast to what we do, and it manifests what Paul is saying we ought to think like. Some people who don't grasp for their own self-interest, and Jesus himself is an example in his godhood of not taking advantage of his own godhood, but taking on the form of a slave. So again, we know that all worldly systems seek their own advantage, and we're prone to seek our own advantage, but God showed himself to be God. This is the character of God. God is self-giving by nature. So in a sense, he showed himself to be God by doing what he did. He didn't seek his own advantage. He didn't grasp and seize at his own godhood, but in self-giving for the sake of others, he emptied himself for the benefit of others. And this emptying was not some part of himself that he gave up. Okay, so if God gives up a part of himself, is he still God? No, he's not God anymore. He's immutable. God is unchangeable. So he can't give up an attribute. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't give up his sovereignty. He didn't give up any part of his character. But what he did give up was the manifestation, the full manifestation of his glory. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, I want the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. I want that back, and I want to be obedient so that you can glorify me as the son. And so this is what he emptied himself of, the full manifestation of his glory by robing it and covering it in humanity, taking the form of a slave. And he was born in the likeness of men. So the word slave denotes that the second person of the Trinity became a person without advantages. So God in himself has all advantages, and he gave up those advantages, his divine prerogatives and, and rights and privileges to serve all. This word slave means serving all, not just believers, unbelievers, everyone in the world. There's no distinction. He came to serve humanity. So again, he, he gave up his full expression of his deity to become a slave. This is humbling. This is Christ's humility. Another way to say it is that he poured himself out by taking the form of a slave. So we see this in our memory verse, right? Second Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. That's his emptying right there. 
So not only this, right? Not only did he empty himself to, to take on the form of a slave, but he was born in the likeness of men. He had full humanity, the humanity that's the same as ours, which means in the exact sense when we look at the word likeness. So we can look at another verse which uses the same Greek word in Romans chapter 5.14. It says that just like our sin was imputed to us from Adam, whose sinning, quote, was not like the transgression of Adam. The same word like was used there, likeness. Not, not in the likeness of Adam. And here, uh, Paul is saying that he came in the likeness of men, the exact sense. So our sinning wasn't the same exact sense as Adam, but Christ's humanity is in the same and full exact sense as our humanity. So again, this is the incarnation. God fully divine and fully human, possessing the attributes of both humanity and divinity. This has been confessed. It has been debated, right? It was debated for centuries after the apostolic time. And, um, and there were a lot of heresies that cropped up. I can think of the Arian heresy, which now the modern manifestation is Jehovah's Witness. Okay, that Jesus is not fully God. He's a creation of God, but he can't be fully Jehovah because there's only one God. So that comes out. That comes from the 3rd and 4th century. That's an old heresy. There's a lot of other heresies. But the council in Chalcedon sought to explain the nature of Christ, the two natures of Christ in one person, and it became a standard for us to look back to. Chalcedon says that Christ is one in two natures, unchangeably, inseparably, unconfusedly, and indivisibly. He fully possesses the attributes of both humanity and divinity, and he's one person. He's the God-man. And he lowered himself to serve us, seeking to give his full advantages to us instead of holding them. And in this work, he continued to humble himself in his humanity. So we see progression again, right? God became man. That's how he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Now we'll see in his humanity, he lowered himself even more. And how did he do this? So again, Paul reiterates in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, we can see Christ's work is progressive. God to man, man to death on a cross. He continues to descend in his humility by going lower than any other human being has ever gone. So in his essence, he's fully God, the creator that we looked at in Colossians 1.15, and it points out there that he made all things, he created all things, all things were created through him and for him. And again, Hebrews 1.3 says that he's the exact imprint of God's nature and goes on to say that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet, the manner in which he humbled himself was by becoming obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And this isn't just any death. It's the most gruesome and shameful death known to man on the cross. You see, for us, the cross doesn't mean what it once was or what it once meant. You know, you've heard that expression, it would be like hanging an electric chair from your neck or something like that. There's, there's truth to that. You know, it was an instrument of death, and it was a shameful instrument of death, and yet we wear pendants, right? We adorn Bibles with crosses, and that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that we lose sight of what the cross really meant at that time. It was not even proper to talk about the act of crucifixion. It was not polite dinner conversation to bring up crucifixion. You could ruin dinner that way, and this is what made Christianity so scandalous is that you can see what the world of thought about what we're going to do next week. Okay, so next week we gather, we take the Lord's Supper, which preaches in the act of doing it, the death of Christ on the cross and his atonement for sins. And we eat a meal together, it's a small one, but we eat it together in memoriam of what Christ has commanded us to do. And we proclaim to the world, our God and Savior has been crucified on our behalf and been raised to the dead, and we hope and we trust in that, and that changes our lives. That's what that is. The world at that time, that's crazy. If you can't even have polite dinner conversation and talking about a cross, imagine what they would think about a community that gathered together to share a meal that typified and symbolized the cross of Christ. It was a scandal to celebrate a man who died on a cross, to celebrate the crucifixion. Again, it was not polite to even mention in public, yet share a meal over it. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, 
and folly to the Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is a scandal, and it's folly to those who don't understand. The death of the cross was reserved for the lowest dregs of society, criminals and slaves. To earn a horrific death on a cross was an ultimate expression of a failed life. You see that? We worship a Savior who humbled himself to the point of a death where in society's eyes it was the ultimate expression of a failed life. It looked like a failure. And Paul says, have this same mind in you. Act like your Savior. Think like him who humbled himself in his humanity this way. He reckoned himself as nothing and counted others as more significant than himself. So here Paul climaxes in what began in verse 6, right? Christ's ultimate descent from heaven. We see everything from eternity past to his crucifixion and resurrection, and then we're going to see his ascension later on in verses 9 through 11. But we see this sharp contrast, this imaginal contrast is what Gordon Fee calls it, God on a cross. God in his unfathomable love and self-giving served his fallen undeserving creatures who deserve his wrath, by the way, so we deserve something, but he experienced the most cruel and humiliating death on the cross at the hands of his creatures. And notice I said God experienced death. I didn't say God died. God cannot die. He would not be God if he died. But in the man Jesus Christ, God experienced death. This is the love and humility of God. This is the mind of Christ, an unqualified giving for the sake of others. Chew on that you know, during lunchtime. God experienced his own wrath. God experienced death, although he did not die. The man, Christ, did die. The God-man. So we are commanded to have this mindset in us. Bring out the white flag in your relationships. That's what this should tell us, right? Christ didn't seek his own self-interest, and it looked this way. Man, you know, what do I have? What do I have to to really gain by my own drive and, and motivation to get what I want? How does this look? Well, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at this text. What does that mean, to give himself up for the church? Love your enemies and those whom you bicker with and seek unity in love, especially with those with whom you disagree, especially with those with whom you disagree. Uh, And this means for everything. This means politically, ideologically, culturally, Seek to be unified in love and seek their interests above your own. This is for the sake of obedience to the Father, just like our Savior did. Our imitation of Christ should be motivated by love and obedience as Christ was. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul even modeled this mindset as well, and he taught it elsewhere. He told the Corinthians in his first letter, the corrective letter, in chapters 8 through 11, to watch out that their right to eat in pagan temples did not stumble their brothers for whom Christ died. He modeled it in his ministry to the Corinthians that he did not accept any wages for his work, though he could have, he had the right to. Even though he had the right to do it, he didn't want to so as to, the way he says it, not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He gave himself. Again, he says to them in chapter 10, 31 through 33, which we think of do all things to the glory of God. You know, we might say it just out of context like that. And we do all things to his glory, whether exercising rights or not to the glory of God. This is how it reads. So whether you eat or drink, Right In the context of this pagan idolatrous worship, not participating in the worship, of kind of being near that and associating with that, that it might stumble a brother. He says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. You see that mindset? Not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. So God himself did it this way, on a cross, which entailed excruciating suffering, which, by the way, is where we get the word excruciating from, crucifixion. God has also gifted this kind of suffering to us and given it to us as a way of privilege for Christ's sake. God made the way by suffering and experiencing the pain of death, excruciating pain, but he also gifted us the privilege to emulate Christ 
in his suffering for the sake of Christ. So Philippians 1.29, that I read earlier, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is a gift. Charis is grace. It's a gift. It's a grace gift for us to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. This part of our obedience and part of his grace toward us is our reward. Do you think about it that way? Your reward of suffering for the sake of Christ? Christ denied his rights as God and as a man. And he humbled himself to the point of death. Can you deny yours? Can you deny your rights, Americans? And I talk to myself when I say that. Can you deny your your rights for the sake of others and for their salvation? Think about ways you can do that or ways that you're not doing that. If you cannot, that's difficult. Have the mind of Christ. I told my wife this morning, I don't know how I'm going to preach this because I fall so short of having the mind of Christ. But this is encouraging to me. Frank Thielman is helpful. He summarizes a thought from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And he says, if you cannot, start by pretending. You might think, oh, what? You know, just pretend that I'm Christ? Yeah, that's what C.S. Lewis says. Let me read it for you. He says, how can a fallible believer be more like Christ amid everyday life? And he summarizes Lewis, if it helps, says Lewis, pretend to be Jesus. Just as a child might pretend to be a soldier or a shopkeeper, just as the child's imaginary games help the child to develop skills that will later be useful as a real soldier or shopkeeper, so the game of pretending to be Christ inevitably reveals to the believer places for improvement and guides the believer towards spiritual maturity. So the mind of Christ you know, Christ obeying motivates us and guides us towards spiritual maturity. Lewis argues that the minute we realize we're dressing up like Christ, we'll discover ways in which our pretense could become reality. We will be embarrassed to discover thoughts that Christ would not have had and unfulfilled duties that Christ would not have neglected. Those realizations, he says, should prompt us to more complete obedience. So in the here and now, we must think like Jesus with regard to our relationships. That's verse 5, right? Have this mind in you. And obedience and our future reward is modeled by Christ as well as a result of his humility and obedience. So this leads us to our third point. So we must model Christ in our relationships. We must model Christ in our obedience, and that includes through suffering. But we must model Christ in our future reward, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verse 9 describes God's response to Christ's obedience. That's what this is. God responds a certain way because Christ has a mindset that expresses itself in a certain way. And again, we see the same word when it says that God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That same word, charizo. In fact, that's where we get the word Eucharist from. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. And so God gifted Christ the name that is above every name as a response and by his sheer act of grace because Jesus obeyed. So it's a grace gift, and yet it's his response to the Savior's work. So Christ did not earn this name. Let me say that right at the outset. Christ didn't earn the name, but it serves as a vindication of his being. So Christ, who did not account himself to be in the form of God, is equal with God, something to be grasped, lowered himself to become a slave, and then lowered himself even more to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God vindicated his self-giving and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Like our standing with God, we do not earn rewards. We don't earn them, right? So God saves us, and then it results in our obedience because of the work of the Spirit and because of the gospel of Christ. And then we receive crowns, and then what do we do? We cast them down at his feet. It's not something we earn. It's God's response to to faithfulness. So God responds to Christ's faithfulness and so bestows upon him this recognition of his supremacy over all things. Paul thinks about it this way too. He says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for what? The prize 
of the upward call, a call of God in Christ Jesus. So here, Christ's equality with God and his self-service is vindicated by this super-exaltation. So God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him. It's super-exaltation, not just exaltation. And God does this by giving him this recognizable superiority over all of creation. And he does it for the purpose that clearly identifies Christ as Lord with the name Yahweh. So Paul kind of takes us back to Isaiah chapter 45, and I'll read chapter, uh, verses 18 through 23. You'll see echoes of this, right? So Paul is monotheistic, just like we're monotheistic. We believe in one God. And if you ever try to explain the Trinity to a five-year-old, that's very difficult. You know, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How many gods are there? Three. No. One God, three per. You know, so is the Son fully God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit fully God? Yes. Is the Father fully God? Yes. How many gods are there? Three. No, no, one. <laughs> so it's not that easy. But Paul is clearly monotheistic here. This is divine revelation. Look at Isaiah 45, 18 through 23. For thus says the Lord, and I'm going to make a comment about that later, Lord in all caps. It's Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. It was replaced later, and I'll tell you why. So for thus says the Lord who created the heavens of the earth, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret and in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wood and idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So God is setting himself as supreme and highly exalted above everything, and all other so-called gods are not gods. He is Yahweh. He says in verse 21, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Which is God's prophetic word in Isaiah, that this would happen, that the Israelites and Jews would go to exile. And then we see uh, promises of a suffering servant Messiah here. Who said this long ago? Was it not I, Yahweh? And this shows that he's God. He predicts the future. Yahweh does that. And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn from my mouth. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance paul uses this in philippians 2 9 through 11 and he inserts christ's name where it says to me in isaiah 45 23 to me every knee shall bow he says the name of christ jesus every knee shall bow he equates jesus as lord with yahweh so he was acting in his full divine status when he humbled himself to the point of death. And when he resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand, it made his superiority in an overcreation more fully evident, is what it did. God exalted him in this recognizable state. You and I and the whole world are called to recognize the lordship of Christ. So the Isaiah passage is not only for believers. It doesn't say that only his people will bow the knee and confess allegiance. It says every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So the scope is broad, and it will contain those who do not believe in Christ right now, and they will confess him as Lord, those who stand as opponents to his lordship and opponents to the cross. If they do not turn now in repentance and faith, they will be put to shame then. So every tongue in the whole universe will confess Jesus is Lord. It's going to happen. You will either confess him now, and you'll know him as Savior, or you will confess him later, and you'll know him as judge. In this passage, we see the doctrine of the Trinity in full effect, which the Spirit causes us to recognize that Jesus is granted by the Father, who bestows all good gifts, right? He's the Father of lights, the bestower of good gifts. He gives him the name which in Hebrew thought is invested with power and authority. This is what I'm going to talk about in the Old Testament. Where it, whenever you go back to the Old Testament and it's still in your Bibles today and you see the word LORD in all caps, that's because of a sect of Jewish transcribers and copyists of the Old Testament 
that had an idolatrous view of the name of Yahweh. They didn't want to even write it in Scripture, so they replaced it with Adonai. That's expressed with, in all caps, Lord. But it should be Yahweh in the Old Testament when we see that. And so it was a misplaced zeal for the name of God, if I might put it that way. So the Father gives him that name. It's synonymous with Yahweh. Jesus Christ as Lord is synonymous with Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's God's covenant name, and it demands full allegiance, reverence, and worship. And this is unto the glory of God the Father. So this is the expression and self-giving nature of the Trinity, right? The Father gives to the Son. The Son gives to the Father. The Holy Spirit gives back to the Father and the Son. This is God's nature. He's self-giving. So this passage is about God's glory, and it's most concerned with his glory in this sense. And the irony is that the second person of the Trinity gave up his glory in order to glorify God or gave up the full manifestation of his glory. In contrast, again, to what men seek in verses 3 and 4, selfish ambition and empty glory. He actually had full glory and emptied himself in order to glorify his Father. So since Christ serves as our model, in the Father's response to vindicate the Son and his obedience, he gives life to us and, and our privileges to obey and to hope in this future eschatological glory. That's a 50-cent word for future glory. So we must think like Jesus in his humility because the Father responds to this kind of mindset. So this is how point three really applies. Think like Christ, model Christ for our future hope. Because we can see in verses 9 through 11, the Father responds to humility. So we must adopt Christ's mindset as his children. This is our assurance, right? Christ was faithful, leading to a universal acknowledgement of his superiority and his rule. So our faithfulness will lead us to resurrection as we identify with Christ in his suffering obedience. Just as Christ has been exalted and rules with authority over all things, one day our body will become like him underneath his rule and through his power. So Paul expresses this in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One commentator says it this way, if we are faithful as Jesus was faithful, then our final day will mean the fulfillment of our deepest longings. The hope for final reward is based on the vindication of Christ as Lord and Savior. It's our hope too. Because of this attitude of humility to the point of suffering, it becomes our model for us to emulate Christ in that way. So Paul reflects on this with these implications, and he reflects on it with hope in verses 10 through 11 in Philippians 3. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul's mindset was not seeking to be a triumphant kind of Christian. We see this nowadays all over the media. You turn to TBN, turn to any kind of network, you see this kind of triumphalism the victory that is expressed, and we're just all doing fine and everything's great. Does it look that way in Paul, in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead? He didn't have that mindset that wows everyone with his spirituality and his victorious life and write books about it. He knew that his sharing of vindication and reward meant that he was privileged to suffer and become like Christ in his death as a pathway to his eternal reward at the resurrection, knowing that Christ has been vindicated and he rules above all authority and above all power, and he recognizes that. That's his hope, and that's our hope as we model Christ in his thinking for our future hope. So this is the mindset that Christ modeled for us. He achieved our salvation and is exalted as Lord above all so that our pathway to heaven expresses itself in concrete manifestations of humility. Okay, our pathway to heaven, looking toward Christ and having the mind of Christ and emulating the mind of Christ, it shows itself, it demonstrates itself in concrete expressions and manifestations of humility. And because it does that, it manifests itself in obedience like it did for Christ. 
And because it does that, it manifests itself in unity forged by love. This desire for unity affects all of our relationships regardless of personality. Whether you get along with someone because you have different kinds of personalities, Paul's like, I'm not having any of that. You know, show unity in love, forged by love, regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of social status, regardless of theological stripe. You might differ with someone theologically, and that's not insignificant. But what should your aim be? Your aim should be love and unity. I had a conversation with a friend from seminary. He said he had it out with a pastor. And I go, oh, no. Um, And he proceeds to explain to me that they differed on some very strong opinions that they both had. And it didn't end well. My goal in that moment, as as I was studying through this passage, was not to take a side between him and the other person. But I said, hey, man, you need to be reconciled to him as a brother. And I'm just reading through Philippians 2. And Christ himself counted his status as godhood as nothing, and he became a man. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't seek anything of his own. If you're both in Christ, then you want to seek love forged by unity together, even though you might differ on some things that you might think are significant. Or at least try and have that conversation, because you might learn from him, and he might learn from you. And so that should be our mindset. Not that this is a magic pill that we're going to get along with everybody, you know, once we have the mind of Christ. No, We're going to be confronted with our own selfishness when we seek to have the mind of Christ, when we pretend to be Christ. So that's the aim is no matter anybody else's preferences or the way anybody else looks or the habits that they have, this should be our mindset to serve them, to seek them, and to put their interests above our own, just like Christ did for us who did not deserve it, who deserved the wrath of God. So our normal sin-filled, selfish, worldly-provoked mindsets, that's what they are, right? We have them when we wake up, and then they're provoked by everything we see in the world. When we walk out of this building, we're going to be provoked to think about ourselves everywhere we go. And we don't need to be provoked because we already do it, but we are going to be. We're going to resist these truths at every turn. It's going to happen. This is why we need each other. This is why we need the local body. This is why we need grace, right? We need grace to think like Christ thinks. We can't do this on our own. It's not inherent to us. It's not in our nature. We need Christ, and we need grace to think God's thoughts after him, right? Because that's what Paul's telling us to do, right? Christ, in the form of God, became a man, suffered death, now highly exalted. Think like him. Have his humility. He's God. He's man. In order to think like God, we have to have grace, So this pattern of Christ thinking reminds us of three things. So kind of an application here. One, it reminds us that the gospel saved us. So there's not this dichotomy, right, between this charismatic view that I talked about and the ethical view that somehow this is what Christ did, so you do it too. It's this is what Christ did. It resulted in your salvation. And yeah, you do it too. You have that same mindset. So this is the gospel that saved us. We rehearsed the gospel this morning. You know, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it reminds us of the gospel that saved us. It reminds us of redemption, the saving significance of Christ's death on the cross, this gruesome, shameful death that he experienced on our behalf. Secondly, it reminds us to imitate him with regard to our suffering and with regard to our obedience. And I kind of, put, kind of put them as two sides of the same coin. If you're obedient, you will suffer. Now, if you're suffering, you, you might be suffering because of your own sin. It might not be because of your obedience. But if you suffer for the sake of Christ, if you suffer for his sake and for the gospel's sake and for unity's sake, if you suffer trying to seek unity and love and reconciliation, then you are taking up your cross. So we imitate him with regard to suffering and obedience, and we can only do this by life in the Spirit, as Paul says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, any participation of the Spirit, any comfort in love. So we cannot do this without grace, to selflessly look to the interest of others and count them as more significant to ourselves. But as one commentator says in the New Testament, particularly in Paul, attitude of mind is closely connected to spiritual status. So if you've been saved by Christ, you've got a new mind, right? And the believer's new standing in Christ both creates and demands 
a new mentality which comes to concrete expression in the unity of the church. Having the mind of Christ demands, because you have a new mind, that you show this new mentality and express it in the unity of the church. Our basis for this is Christ's character. That is God's love expressed and our participation in the spirit of God. And then number three, the hope of our vindication with Christ is that he is our forerunner in his glory. So he did what we could not do. He achieved what we could not achieve. And now God has highly exalted him, given the name above all names, that all the universe would bow to the glory of God the Father. That's the result, right? God did this. The Father did this. And the result was Christ's exalted status. And he did this for the purpose of what? His own glory, to the glory of God the Father. So we must endeavor to have the same mind of Christ who lowered himself and obeyed, resulting in his exaltation to the Father's glory so that we might display Christ's lordship through our unity, through our humility and obedience. Do we always have to be motivated by the gospel? Where is he going with this? There has been within the last few years this idea of living the cross-centered life is a good thing, but do we always have to be motivated by the truths of the gospel in order for our obedience to actually mean anything and to be sanctifying? Does it have to be the gospel affected me? Excuse me. Do we have to sin in order to repent and to trust Christ in the gospel and then sanctification happens? And I think this passage says no, We can have different motivations, and they're all based on God's grace, and they're all flowing out of God's grace. We must be informed and motivated by the word of God and by trusting in Christ. So when we obey the word of God, especially with reference to the mind of Christ, we're expressing our trust in the gospel. We're expressing gospel truths, even though we we might not be consciously motivated by those gospel truths in the moment. We're expressing God's grace and the work of the Spirit in our hearts. So we don't have to sin in order to be sanctified. We don't have to repent in order to be sanctified. In the midst of temptation, we can act like our Lord, who in the power of the Spirit remembered the word of God and obeyed. And he did that in the, by walking in the Spirit. And so now we can do that. So we can trust in Christ, leaning on his person and work, as explained in the gospel. This is real for us. And relying and depending upon the Holy Spirit. That encouragement in Christ and participation of the Spirit leads to unity and humility. He did it, so I can do it. Not in my own power, not in my own strength, but because he gives me the strength through the power of the Spirit to do it. It doesn't always feel good, does it? I mean, if we said, man, i got to feel like obeying before I obey, I'm going to use that as an excuse for disobedience. No, I can't. When Jesus said, I must go to the cross, that's his duty. He knew he had a duty. I must do this. And he did it with right motives. And so we can do the same thing. We ought to feel things, but at the same time, our our emotions are sometimes the result of our obedience and not the motivation for our obedience. It can't be the motivation. So again, we're commanded to model Christ in three respects so that we might display his lordship in our unity, humility, and obedience to the glory of God the Father. Number one, we must model Christ in our relationships together based on his humility. We must model Christ in our obedience, and that's going to contain suffering. And we must model Christ for our future reward because he is high and super exalted and has the name above all names And so we bow and confess his lordship now. And so we're thankful for God's grace that he's enabled us to do that. Father, you are the giver of gifts. We often say thank you. I often say thank you in my prayers, and I begin that way. But thinking about the good gifts that you give us, especially in Christ, uh, is humbling. And I pray that you would constantly set him before us Uh, that you would take the truths that were explained from your word today and graft them into our heart, inscribe them onto our heart and our mind so that we might be motivated to think like Christ when we wake up tomorrow morning, when we go to lunch, that we might not seek our own interests but seek the interests of others. When we go to work, that we would be focused on um, the needs as a top priority, the needs of others and not our own needs. We can't do this in our homes. We can't do this in society. We can't do this in the church. We can't minister to people who are blinded by their own self-interest just 
as we were and like we can be unless we ourselves are seeking to serve them and be patient and loving and forge unity through love and be at peace with them. So we pray that you would help us to do that in all sectors of society, in our community, so that Christ might receive the glory and that you, Father, might receive the glory because of the life of Christ that you are working out in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.